For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Welcome, everyone. Can you all hear me? Uh, so I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding uh, teacher here at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, our guest speaker, Stephen Hine. I think many of you uh, know him or have heard him speak here before, but for those who may not, uh, Stephen is one of the foremost uh, scholars, uh, at least in the West, of Dogen and koans and many aspects of Zen Buddhism. And he has spoken here before, um, really a uh, very noted scholar. Uh, and he's going to talk today about uh, the uh, complexities and origins of one of the koans of the great teacher Yunmen. So thank you very much, Stephen. Welcome. Uh, thank, uh, thank you, Ty uh, warm welcomes to everyone who's uh, on site and, and in the uh, virtual uh, realm today. Um, and it's always a, a great pleasure to uh, interact with Taigen and his Sangha, um, uh, oh, and, which I've had the pleasure of doing many times over the years. Um, so today, as Taigen mentions, um, I'm going to uh, talk about a couple different versions and interpretations of uh, one of one of the koans by uh, the famous uh, monk Yunmen, who died in 949. And uh, that century, uh, that date is important because it was about uh, 50 years or so before the 10 hundreds began. And that's when the big explosion of koan collections and commentaries started to happen. And Yunmen uh, was at the forefront of it, uh, partly because it was, uh, a number of leaders of his lineage were were prevalent in the early days of the koan collections. Um, and um, th this uh, koan is um, called Yunmen's Jewel. Uh, you'll, it's also known as Yunmen's Lantern. We'll see why in a few minutes. Um, I don't believe that Dogen uh, refers to uh, this particular koan directly, but he uh, um, uh, Dogen does cite Yunmen many times. Uh, generally in a very positive way. Occasionally he's critical of Yunmen as he is with some of the other uh, early uh, Zen masters in China. And um, and uh, one of the things um, uh, Dogen does talk about, particularly in the fascicle called komyo or light or brightness or radiant light, it's translated in different ways, um, is uh, that there is a, a radiant, a radiance, a, a light that emanates from everyone, but we don't see it amid uh, the darkness of our ignorance. And that was a Yunmen saying that he talks about in, in the fascicle uh, komyo or radiant light. Um, and that's similar to the jewel. The idea of the jewel is a hidden treasure that we all possess, which is also uh, an idea that you find in uh, numerous uh, Mahayana Buddhist uh, writings, especially um, uh, Lotus Sutra. And, um, but um, in, in honor of the kind of free association and meandering path that uh, Koan writings uh, elicit, I'm going to start with a couple of uh, brief uh, detours to kind of uh, create a mood for uh, looking at this uh, particular case. And 
what I'm going to show here, and I'll, let me do a screen share. This will just be about two minutes of uh, some music. Um, that, um, as you can see on the screen, there's a piece called the uh, that's known as the Drunken Fisherman Singing in the Sunset. Here, the term drunken um, is not necessarily literal. Uh, the the fisherman probably did drink uh, wine, but it, it, I think it's more of a sense of intoxication that they have with going out to the waters, with the act of fishing, with the act of, with the knowledge that they're helping to sustain their community by bringing back food, uh, with interacting with the, with nature, communing with the elements. And uh, this music that is, uh, of course, uh, done in modern times, but tries to replicate the instruments and the, the dress code of the Song Dynasty, which was um, around, you know, the 11th and 12th and 13th centuries when all this stuff was happening in China and that when Dogen was going from Japan to China. Um, and uh, so I want to I just want to play uh, a couple of uh, minutes of, of this um, song. It starts out. Um, with a very serene atmosphere, we can see the uh, the two long um, string instruments, um, flute, a couple of um, uh, percussions on the side that aren't quite playing right now, and um, uh, there's also the interesting figure of the narrator who sits to the uh, on the chair to the right, and whose gestures help to tell the story that the music is trying to convey. And in a few moments, this uh, very serene feeling will get a little bit more exuberant. Then the exuberance ends and it, it, it becomes a quiet piece again that I'll just play a few notes because it, it seems to be a little bit similar to Eric Satie, if you're familiar with his works. Okay. So, uh, so um, I'm going to do another uh, screen share um, for... Uh, let's see. 
a literary item. Okay, so um, part of the reason I wanted to show that was uh, the emphasis on uh, the fishermen boating, um, the interaction of, of people and, and waterways, which is going to come up in um, a couple of the poetic interpretations of the koan that we'll get to a little in a, in a couple minutes. Um, and, um, it, you know, I think fishermen and to some extent farmers were kind of idealized by the uh, poets and the literati and the intellectuals of this period known as the Song Dynasty in, in China. Um, because they, you know, supposedly led a pure life. They weren't uh, uh, corrupted by the uh, ur urbanization that was taking place. Uh, they were at one with nature. They helped their um, uh, community. They they uh, worked in uh, groups and collaborated with others to, um, and they and they knew the rotation of the seasons um, very well. And so, uh, to some extent, they were somewhat compared with. Um, with Zen masters, um, both poet, uh, both uh, farmers and, and fishermen. Um, but of course they did not have the monastic discipline uh, and training of, of Zen masters. However, uh, they had something uh, a little bit similar to the uh, spiritual insight perhaps, and the uh, sense of awakening uh, that, that Zen was trying to cultivate. Now the, the second uh, detour before I get to the uh, koan is a poem by the uh, famous um, Chinese poet um, named uh, Su Shi, who uh, Dogen cites uh, in a famous passage uh, in the uh, Keisei San uh, Shoku um, uh, fascicle about the, um, uh, the the mountains and valleys. Um, and uh, he he wrote a Su Shi, uh, wrote a poem about meditating all night and, and seeing the mountains as the body of the Buddha and the um, and the valley streams as the long tongue or the speaking of the Buddha that Dogen cites in that in that one fascicle. Uh, Susha actually wrote 2,700 poems, they say. He was also a great uh, painter and calligrapher and uh, was famous for many other things as well. He was involved in politics for a long time in his life, but came um, into trouble with the government and was exiled uh, south of the capital and um, then became very much involved in uh going along waterways in, in boats to travel through lakes and rivers in southern China, where he uh, got involved in meditation and often interacted with, um, with Zen masters. So that's a whole other story in itself. I don't want to spend too much time on this poem, but I just wanted to point out that uh, this is often seen, and, and um, Susha himself you know, did meditate and did, did praise um, uh, Zen meditation and see that, uh, and, and think that poetry and meditation, you know, were both sources of insight that were very much compatible. In this poem, he's not talking about Zen meditation so much, but as you can see in the first um, paragraph or the first verse, he um, he wakes up at night. He thinks he hears rain, but it's actually the um, uh, just the uh, rustling of the uh, of the plants, and uh, it's a very quiet scene. Everyone uh, seems to have fallen to sleep. Uh, you only see the moonlight uh, reflecting on the water. Uh, and in the second verse, things don't budge. I, am, I have to amuse myself with my shadow. Uh, but he does feel a bit of compassion for the, uh, for the worms that are being uh, flooded by the tide waters. Um, and, you know, which is an interesting comment on sentient beings. And 
he does see the moon kind of trapped by the uh, by the spider whip. Um, the the third verse, the final verse, is what uh, the Chan commentators or Zen commentators like to focus on because here he says, "Okay, I was filled with a sense of disquiet." Uh, the, so the serenity had passed, um, and the, as daylight was coming on, you could he- hear the uh, birds chirping and the and the bells and the drums were being sounded in, in the boat. So here we get the sense of the uh, there's there's no fishing element here, but of course that was being done by others on the boat probably. But here you get a sense of the. Um, you know something special is going on when you're out to the out in the waterways that you can't quite put your finger on, uh, but it has a it has a a, a deep uh, sense of equanimity uh, that that is comparable to, um, to to Zen insight. Okay, so with those passages in mind, or the music in this passage, this verse in mind, now let's let's um, get a, a little bit closer to. The koan in question. Now, as I mentioned, um, Dogen often refers to Yunmen, who was a hugely famous figure, more famous at the at, uh, at the time than Linji or Rinzai in Japanese pronunciation, probably. Although that was going to change uh, some years later. Uh, but Yunmen was particularly well known to the Chinese, and he kind of, you know, at that time. That is the 10 and 1100s. You know, he was probably the one person who most epitomized for um, Chinese who were interested in Zen, not necessarily practicing it, but uh, the intellectuals and the poets who were interested in in studying it with it or interacting with it. Probably Yun Man was the single most famous figure. And um, uh, Dogen uh, cites um, the following koan attributed to Yun Men in the Komyo or Radiant Light Festival. He addresses the assembly and says, people have a radiant light, but when they look for it, they, they don't see it amid the darkness. What is this radiant light? Members of the assembly had no response. Well, that's an interesting phrase in itself, because what would often happen in these cases that either the, either the people in the audience were the, uh, the monks in the audience were were quiet and and you know didn't didn't know the answer or uh, a master like Yun Min was kind of eager to leap in with his own particular uh, unique uh, comment to give to give the either um, you know to give the, the his followers even more to think about and here um, very cryptically he says simply monks hall Buddha hall. Uh, refectory or kitchen and main monastery gate uh, and that's they just list those four items that in themselves don't seem to have much to do with uh, the image of light and so um, how do you how do you think about that so here I just um, uh, placed a couple of Dogen's comments if you if you you know the check the translations of this fascicle he goes on for you know, uh, several more paragraphs than what I have here, but I wanted to focus in particular on the the second part of the story, Monk's Hall, Buddha Hall, Refectory, and uh, Main Gate of the Temple. Um, and so how does, you know, what does Dogen make of this? Is this a kind of nonsensical uh, listing to kind of um, confound the imagination 
um, to take you away from thinking too abstractly or metaphysically about the light itself? Um, or is it uh, an example of, of making the abstract image very concrete, um, which Yuan Man and others do? Um, uh, for example, um, you know, the, the famous uh, um, uh, a case of, um, you know, what, why did the Buddha come? Uh, why did Bodhidharma come uh, to China? And the answer is uh, three, three pounds of, um, of, uh, of flax. Um, and there are many other examples of, um, of, of, of just giving some very concrete image. Like sometimes the images, like Jaljo talks about radishes. Um, he talks about having a heavy shirt. Uh, don't seem to have anything necessarily specifically to do with Buddhist practice. Obviously, these are the core of Buddhist practice. So one interpretation could be, well, the light is found, maybe it's only found within the monastery gates, and you have to go into the main gate and then you know visit these other halls and be practicing regularly in the halls to experience the light. That could that could be an implication. Um, so Dogen, uh, I'm going to go through the Dogen part quickly. But he says, um, you know, how, you know, what uh, he, he doesn't necessarily give you an answer. In the first paragraph, he says, um, how many uh, of these uh, halls and gates are there? Are these, should these be considered Yun men? Should these be considered the seven primordial Buddhas, uh, six leading up to Shakyamuni as the seventh? Should they be considered the uh, four times seven or the 28 uh, Indian patriarchs culminating in Bodhidharma? Are they the two times three or six early Chinese patriarchs going from Bodhidharma to Huainang? Um, are they a teacher's fist? The fist is is another concrete image of uh, of the Dharma embodied in the um, teaching of the of the master. Are they a disciple's nostrils? Um, they, uh, Zen often uses the image of uh, leading disciples uh, on by the nostrils, like the ten ox herding pictures where. Um, the, the ox has to be uh, trained and tamed at first before it can um, have, have self-discipline to walk freely. And then in the second paragraph, he says, um, OK, regarding this uh, saying about the halls and the gates. Um, you know, the, the, these don't seem to in this part, part of the passage he said these don't seem to refer to people. Do they refer to the Buddhas? Well, then, then we're left with a very typical Dogen kind of saying. There are no Buddhas that have Buddha halls, and there are no Buddhas that have no Buddha halls. There are Buddhas that have uh, the radiant light, and there are Buddhas that uh, do not have the radiant light. There are radiant light that have no Buddhas, and there are radiant lights that have uh, Buddhas. So Dogen leaves us with his uh, typical kind of paradoxical uh, mind-boggling, tongue-twisting, um, you know, uh, deliberately uh, convoluted or deliberately uh, very simple sentences. I, I I put the Chinese characters there. You can see that last sentence is quite looks quite simple, um, but the uh, sometimes the the simpler the expression, the the more complicated uh, the thinking. Okay, so once again, as far as I'm aware. Um, I, I, I'm Taigen can correct me if, if it's in the uh, extensive record, but I don't think Dogen refers specifically to the, to the jewel case, but the jewel case is quite similar to the, um, to the one that Dogen does cite. 
the now the jewel case we're going to look at a couple of examples one is from yun men's record uh yun men's record was the uh recorded sayings of yun men uh again he lived in the early 900s but by the 10 hundreds by around 1020 his recorded sayings were published as a single book and they were it was, this book was quite popular and stayed in print for you know a century or so and apparently it was being widely read as a kind of you know manual or primer for understanding zen especially for for um, a, a lay audience of intellectuals and poets so there's a version of it there and then the famous uh, uh koan collection the blue cliff record case 62 has another version with a verse comment this was done well the you know, uh, this was kind of a, a multi-level text that was originally, a part of it was originally uh, produced in 1038. So around the same time as Yuan Men's uh, record, and then it was elaborated in uh, a century later. Uh, so we're going to look at the, the case here and this, uh, the poetic comment on it. And that's, and here you can see cast a fishing bowl. Here's where the, uh, the boating uh, image comes in a little bit. Um, and then, um, or the or the waterway image, at least, and then um, and then there's another version of the case in the Book of Serenity, and of course these are the uh, two of the most famous collections that um, uh, exist in translation. Uh, but from uh, um, well, I think I think in Book of Serenity there's only one main translation, maybe by uh, Cleary. I think there's one other partial translation and uh, Blue Cliff Record also translated by the. A couple th different times by uh, the Cleary brothers or by Tom Cleary, and um, and uh, this um, uh, was published in 1224, but it was based on uh, a poem that was written by uh, Hongzhi, who who Taigan has, in a, uh, uh, that's part of his expertise, um, that was written about almost a century before in 1134. And here we can see there's more of the uh, boating image. Uh, and fishing image uh, that we'll get to. Okay, so let's go back to the case itself. And um, what we're going to see is that in Yunmen's record, um, there's a version that's an, a very interesting version, but it's not quite the same version as the version that's found in the Blue Cliff record and the Book of Serenity. The versions in, in the Two later ones, Blue Cliff and, and Serenity, are pretty similar. Um, and somewhere along the line, somebody decided to change it a little bit. That's one of the things with the koans when you look at the at the history of them. Um, there not only are there many different interpretations in prose and poetry and capping phrases, but the the, the stories themselves uh, tend to change, tend to evolve for various reasons. People deliberately change them or scribal uh, errors that are, you know, as Dogen said, you know, there's um, errors upon errors are, can be good errors because maybe you get to, closer to the truth. Um, in any case, um, it's pretty clear that the image of the jewel that Yunmen refers to came from an early Mahayana uh, treatise by a monk named uh, Sung Zhao, who was a very famous uh, early uh, Chinese Buddhist monk before the Zen era, however, uh, called the Treatise of uh, the Hidden Treasure that that is has been translated by um Bob Scharf. And um it, um it cites this uh key passage within 
there is a jewel hidden inside the human body. And um, in the original text, it also says the jewel is empty, still difficult to perceive within or without, and is known as the mystery of mysteries. Okay, so Yun-Men just refers to the first sense. He, he doesn't include that second sense. We have to assume that in his era, uh, people would know what he was referring to. And maybe he just didn't need to bring up the second sentence because it, you know, it was repetitive. And, 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 you know, these were, these kinds of writings were known inside and out by the, by the monks. Now, um, uh, this is a, for this part, I picked a translation that's, that's best known for Yon Men's record by Urs App. And it says where he calls it um, hidden inside the human body. Now, if you look at these two characters, literally it means form and mountain. So it sometimes is translated as um, the form of a mountain, or it's well, I think it's usually translated as uh, a mountain form or mountain dash form. And um, it's a little bit abstract, I think. Um, um, It could be translated as the form of a mountain. Now, keeping in mind that the temples are almost always located in mountains and referred to as mountains, so it could be saying it's inside the temple. Um, but I think I think I agree with Erzap um, that it's referring to the human body. It's referring to the person. It's inside our bodies. Um, now, I do change the translation when I get to the Blue Cliff Record and I get my own translation. I, t- I change it a little bit to this rugged body. Because I think the idea of the mountain is the saying it's like not curated by society. It's kind of the original, you know, raw, maybe raw body, um, you know, it, that, we're there, that we're born with uh, before society has affected us one way or the other. Then Yuan Men says, I pick up the lantern inside the Buddha hall and place it on the main monastery gate. How about that? He asks. Now, this is similar to the one we saw about radiant light because it referred to Buddha Hall, Monk's Hall, and the others. Here it just says uh, Buddha Hall and Gate. So two of the four items are here. And it's a little bit vague. Like I pick up a lantern in the Buddha Hall and put it on the monastery gate. Uh, one view would be that, you know, by putting it on the, uh, that if you're picking it up in the hall, that means you're already inside the gate. You're already in the temple compound. Um, so you, you find it the, in the Buddha Hall through meditation and other practice. And then maybe now you put it on the gate to shine the light for others to see who are approaching the temple and need that kind of inspiration. That's one way of interpreting it. Um, again, we get this trope where he asks the assembly and they don't give an answer, apparently. So he says, well, I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll, then I'll give the answer. Uh, Yunmen was particularly known for that, but that that was we we see that in a lot of these um, Zen records. Okay, then he says, if one chases after things, one's intentions are swept along, or we could say maybe swept away, or uh, you know, it's a little bit it's a little bit vague, but he seems to be saying, don't chase after things. Now, is the Buddha Hall and the monastery gate and the the lantern itself, or, the, or are those things? And we should just look for the symbolism, or we should look beyond the specifics. Um, you know, that that he leaves us food for thought. And then he adds, the thunder rolls and the clouds are gathering. It sounds a little ominous. There's a big storm coming. 
Now, maybe it's a good storm. Maybe it's a storm after a long drought, but um, it it sounds it sounds a little bit ominous. Maybe maybe the thunder rolls and the clouds are gathering are the um, upsetment of the master for his his followers not following his instructions or not or not getting the meaning. Um, but you know, we have this natural image. So he takes us to the image of the within the gate. He questions how we understand that. They don't answer. So he gives a, another comment that questions it a little bit more. And then he turns to nature, not uncommon in the Zen writings from this period to cap off with a, a natural image. Okay. So as I said, um, when we get into the koan collections, Blue Cliff Record and Book of Serenity, they have um, changed this uh uh, just a little bit, mainly by leaving out the second part of it, or the last part where he he gives the um, he gives the comment about chasing after things and thunder rolling. They that's not included in the in the collection. So they took the first part, and um, uh, they and they they changed the they they changed the wording a little bit to make the quote more compatible with the uh, word-to-word uh, discussion in this treatise that it uh, that the passage is apparently taken, taken from. So now it's like a quote from the treatise rather than a paraphrase. Within heaven and earth, there is a jewel hidden in the, in the mountain body, the physical body, the human body, the, re- the rugged body. Pick a, up, a, and, this, and then this is Yuan Man's comment, pick up a lantern from the Buddha hall and place it on the main monastery gate. Um, Okay, so the um, you know inciting the uh, the original Chinese here, you can see that the um, uh, the in parentheses, and I just copy pasted the formatting from uh, from this internet version. Um, uh, but the capping phrases are in parentheses, and and these are given a different colored font to, to kind of highlight. Um, so these coin collections get uh, complicated. I want to get too carried away with that. But the the point is that you have um, the case and then you have interjected after uh, almost every phrase, some capping phrase that often uh, is kind of like a scorecard um, in the sense that kind of keeps track of, you know, who's doing well in the, (laughs) in the interactions, how, how clever is the teacher? Uh, is he outsmarting the students or the students keeping up? Um, and, um, and, and, and there's a lot of irony in these capping phrases. So a lot of times they, you know, if, if, if the teacher does uh, really well, the capping phrase may say, well, I'm going to give that, I'm going to give that master 30 blows of my staff anyway, because everyone deserves it. So, you know, they're, they, they, they make a point of not being, um, even though they offer high praise many times, they're not kind of slavishly devoted to what any particular uh, view is. Um, now, I, here I just quoted the last the last couple of um, uh, capping or the capping phrases on this last part about the Buddha Hall and placing it on the gate. So uh, there's two sets of capping phrases. Uh, the first one says, "Great teacher Yun Men is correct, but he creates confusion." So here they're casting doubt on Yun Men. By giving this kind of uh, overly concrete, maybe uh, image of the about the uh, the hall and the gate, it's clear that if you think carefully about what he says, you won't be able to avoid smelling his 
you know what? Now that you know uh, the Zen capping phrases often get you know get to that um, kind of scandalous uh, level of rhetoric, um, you know, and, and it's meant disingenuously, playfully, but you know sometimes they probably do mean some criticism. There's another capping phrase by a monk named uh, Tenji. Afraid of giving an explanation based on feelings, he focuses on the present moment. So Tenji is kind of more kind to Yunmen, and he's just telling uh, telling us, uh, reminding us of the important point that, look, if Yunmen, uh, you know, gave it away, tried to give it away in too clear cut, uh, straightforward an explanation, it's it's not going to help his followers any. So he just he 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 says like you know point to the current reality in front of you, which is the hall and the gate. But the instruction of, you know, picking up the lantern and placing it under the gate is still a little bit unclear. Um, now, the poem also is not going to give a clear-cut explanation of it either. In fact, the poem kind of dodges that whole point. But I think the poem is very fascinating for what it does say, for what it does say about the um, about Yun Man's teaching and its impact on his on his followers. So this is a four line poem um, with uh, with capping phrases uh, for each line of it. And um, first of all, he says, uh, you know, take a good look at the situation. This is a very unusual way to start the poem because you can see that the other lines generally have seven characters or six characters, and this has only two. And it's and it's just it literally it says look look, but it's interpreted to me, you better look carefully at this situation. Don't just take it for granted. And um, who casts a fishing pole from the ancient shore? So this brings us back to the fishing image. Who is the fisherman here? Well, I think it's it's supposed to be, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious it's got to be Yunmen. And what is Yunmen doing? Well, I think they're comparing him to a fisherman who's kind of hanging out on the shore side, enjoying himself like in the in the music that we saw, both serene and exuberant. And that means he's kind of away from the humdrum activities within daily life, including the temple, uh, his temple teachings. But the fishing pole can mean that he's fishing for uh, in, in deep waters for new ideas. It can mean, and it's often used to mean that he's fishing to help his followers. He, you know, he's offering them bait so that they can, you know, uh, get to shore, so to speak. You know, there's a famous parable in the Lotus Sutra about the uh, the blind turtle that that floats to shore on a piece of driftwood. So the the um, uh, the Zen masters were often pic- uh, pictured as 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 uh, you know casting their fishing pole to to find ideas or to find followers. Now, notice that back in, in the original Yunmen passage, it says the thunder rolls and clouds are gathering. Here, there's a much more serene image. Clouds are rolling by and water is overflowing. So maybe it's the same kind of rainstorm, but it's a little bit more mild feeling. What is the rainstorm? Is the rainstorm the, the rain of the Dharma uh, that is coming from uh, Yunmen's teaching that is going to affect people, even if they can't quite uh, get the point of what he's tr- tried to say? And then uh, the poem ends, uh, see, well, see for yourself how bright moonlight shines on white reed flowers. Well, here we get uh, a, a monochromatic image that uh, Zen often uses, the, the moon on the white flowers, the moon on the white vase, the, the moon on the uh, white um, uh, goose that's sitting on a white vase, that multiple shades of that monochromatic uh, 
uh, imagery is, is is frequently evoked, and the moonlight, of course, can mean Buddha nature. But as it's shining, and and the light is uh, reflected and refracted, and 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 creates shadows, uh, that the Buddha nature, you know, is then adapting itself or uh, to interact at different levels uh, for the for the uh, the followers and and their stages of learning. Um, so to look at one of the capping phrases, this, this, uh, this last one here on the fourth line, brightness isn't the flowers themselves and the body isn't six sensations. So use your own eyes to see. Well, the message is, you know, basically see for yourself. The self-reliance is, is more important than anything the teacher is going to say or, or withhold. Okay. So in the last part here, um, let's see how this works in terms of the Book of Serenity. So these were the two major collections. They were done about a, a hundred years apart. Uh, both are multi-level. So they start with poems. Like here, the poem was originally in 1038, but then was commented on in 1128. And in the Book of Serenity, the poem, the original poem was 1134. And was commented on uh, 1224. Uh, th- you know, this makes it more complicated, more interesting, because you see these multiple levels interacting. And um, and it also means that this second poet, Hongjur, in 1134, was very aware. And he would have studied carefully and probably even memorized the collection by Shuedo almost a century before, because that's the way... Uh, these people were thinking in those days. And he's not going to say a word about the same koan without uh, somewhat evoking or alluding to or indirectly commenting at the very least on what his famous uh, illustrious predecessor has had already said. So to establish his originality, he's going to have to refer back. That's, you know, that's that's true in many traditional, uh, I think, creative uh, artistic traditions, but especially in China where you'll have that golden age feeling. So whoever says it first has to, uh, you know, be given that uh, sense of respect, even if you want to change it or tweak it um, or, or radically revise it or repudiate what the guy said, um, you, you still have to refer back and evoke it in, in some way. And I think Hunter does this in a really, really fascinating way, which we'll get to uh, soon. So one thing I wanted to do here was to, um, um, start with the uh, instruction so um or, or the introduction so both collections have a brief introductory comment here i just took a couple sentences from this one but i wanted to point out that he um the, the introduction he's kind of describing uh it's, you know the freedom of samadhi and and how yunmen's uh, teachings function and he makes these two references to mujo's ancient drill and Shui Feng's South Mountain Turtle Nose Snake. Now, the turtle nose uh, snake that he refers to uh, by Shui Feng was pretty well known because that was another koan in these same collections. And the turtle nose snake was supposedly a poisonous snake that could symbolize the kind of venomous quality that teachers' teachings could have when it zaps somebody who's filled with ignorance and attachment. And it's you know it's like good medicine, but you have to be afraid of that snake. Uh, tigers are also you know, uh, great um, uh, arrows, uh, great, uh, you know, uh, marksmen or, or uh, uh, shooters of bows and arrows are often referred to um, as as having an ability that's similar to as, as in teacher's ability. 
Um, now, the, Mujo's ancient drill is a, is a more obscure one. Now, it turns out that Shui Feng and Mujo were both teachers of one man. And, and he, he had these dramatic uh, interactions with them when he got enlightened. Um, and Mujo, uh, Mujo said uh, to, um, <laughs> to Yun Man, oh, you're like an ancient drill. And, uh, you know, that, you got to track that down. So what, what does that ancient drill mean? Well, if you go back to the, uh, the Qin dynasty in China, with the Qin emperor starting to build the Great Wall, and he had these, you know, kind of uh, very, very exaggerated, uh, grandiose ideas of, of, of what his um, uh, palace was going to look like. Apparently, he had this huge uh, device created that's like an awl, A-W-L, that was created to, to, uh, to drill on a much larger level, on a, on a, you know, a, a hundred times level. And, and that instrument was made fun of later because the, uh, uh, the, that emperor failed at his uh, grandiose endeavors and it became uh, a symbol of foolhardiness. And so when Mujo referred to Yunmen as an ancient drill, what are you saying is like, well, you're useless. And of course, that's the exactly the <laughs> the saying that gets Yunmen uh, enlightened. And then he goes to study with Shui Feng and, and deepens his, his understanding. Okay, so the koan we've pretty much talked about. Um, I will mention uh, that uh, the capping phrases here add a little bit of equality because it says, um, pick up a lantern from the Buddha Hall, and here they refer to the uh, to the famous um, saying that's uh, attributed to the early days of Soto Zen in China. Um, the donkey. This is the donkey looking at the well, and place it on the main monastery gate. This is the well looking at the donkey. So Hongzhou is a, a, a Soto follower. He evokes this phrase. He, he doesn't always evoke what's in his lineage, but. I think it is an interesting way of, of trying to interpret the significance of that passage. Okay, so let's turn to uh, uh, this poem. Again, um, I think we have to take for granted that this poem is, um, uh, is alluding to and kind of giving its own interpretation of the previous poem. Now, the previous poem was four lines um, long. And that was pretty typical of the Chinese verses. Uh, um, one interesting thing it does here is um, break the rules drastically with the first line. That that doesn't sound like such a big thing, but in the context of the strict literary rules that the that the Zen masters were expected to follow uh, as part of the poet, poetic tradition, you know, that's a kind of radical step. That's saying, like, I don't care about that rule. I just want to make my point, which is, like, see it for yourself, which, is, you know, which he gets to in the last line. Uh, in the second poem, uh, the rules are followed more strictly, uh, but he goes on for two verses, which is allowable. I mean, that's that's not really breaking a rule, but um, it, it, it does show that he's got something uh, unique that he wants to put forth, I think. Okay. So the first line, wrapping up the case without resorting to flowery words. Well, you know, wrapping up the case was, was um, a common saying for the koans, because koans, uh, as some of you probably know, were 
the, the word koan originally referred to detective stories before Zen, back in the Tang Dynasty. And, um, and, and Zen kind of playfully used the word koan to refer to kind of the, the unraveling of a mystery about how two parties who are in the part, taking part in the encounter dog stand in terms of their relation with each other and in terms of their uh, understanding of the Dharma. And you, it, it becomes easily uh, seen or exposed. But there's still a lot of obscurity a lot of times about who, uh, who outdid the other or who, who's really got the point or maybe they both have the point. And so wrapping up the case was kind of a, a term that they also borrowed from the legal uh, tradition um, that that there's a kind of legal case. And, and that when you solve the case, you know, it's you, you wrap it up because you 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 find out who who actually committed the crime and what the appropriate punishment is and all the all the mysteries have been solved, so to speak. So if you wrap up the case, uh, you're bringing it to a conclusion. So, but Hung Jir is saying that Yun Man, without resorting to, uh, did it without resorting to flowery words. In other words, his concrete image of the of the Buddha Hall and the gate and the lantern, you know, seemed to be a, a very positive because he brings you back to, back to the present moment, as one of the uh, previous commentators had said. Um, and he takes us back to the source of life. So, the, what is the source of life? Well, the source of life could be uh that jewel um because that's that's what they're really getting at and everything else uh, other than the jewel itself then experiencing the jewel and discovering it for yourself is kind of a secondary level that that may be helpful but it's an expedient means then he mentions um two very interesting um uh two very interesting Images. The woodcutter with the rotted axe can't find the road. Mr. Pot makes his home living in the cassia tree. Okay, so what are those images? Okay, here I'm going to do another screen share. Uh, just because I think it's it's very, very interesting the way... Um, the way that uh, uh this author this this commentator uh and let me see i'm trying to okay uh this commentator uh turns to traditional chinese legends that had nothing to do with zen but from the from the you know, the Zen author's standpoint, everything has to do with Zen, you know, and you can find these life lessons anywhere. First of all, they wanted to appeal by using folklore and legends and mythology and poetry. They wanted to appeal to a wider audience. They wanted to appeal to the Confucians who were well-educated. They wanted to appeal to the Taoists who were already, you know, uh, living or practicing in the mountains a lot of times. And, and they wanted to show that, uh, okay, a lot of the pre-Buddhist wisdom in China actually, you know, was a predecessor to, to Zen truth. And so let's give a Zen view of these two legends, uh, the woodcutter and the axe. Okay, so if you can see this image here, hope everybody can see this that, uh, that the cursor is pointing to. Here's the woodcutter. He had a, one of those magical axes that, that, that uh, you know, Dallas talk about. He could cut a hair, he could split a hair with his, with the blade of his axe. He, you know, he never had to sharpen the, the blade of the axe because it, he, you know, he never damaged it when he when he cut anything. Uh, Zhuangzi in the early Taoist writing has 
He talks about a butcher's knife in, in similar ways. But somehow he comes across people playing the game of, of uh, you know, what in Japan is called Go, you know, kind of Chinese chess. And he gets so fascinated by it that he stands there and watches it go on for we don't know how long. And when he finally comes to his senses, he looks out and the axe has rotted away. That's how long he got mesmerized by it. So if we if we think about the poem, the implication is that um, as sharp as the woodcutter's blade is and as sharp as his mind must be to have it that way, he can lose his mind very easily in getting distracted. Okay, and then Mr. Pot lives in the cashew tree. This is another interesting legend. Here's Mr. Pot. Or this is somebody who lives in a pot, and he was known as Mr. Pot. And this is a very elaborate, uh, you know, traditional Chinese legend going back to pre-Buddhist days, or the early Confucian era type of uh, history. And uh, this was this was a wizard who who would show up in the marketplace with medicine. Whenever anybody was sick, he'd, he'd give them the, the right medicine, and they got healed. And he never charged any money for it. And so, you know, people were very grateful, and they never thought that much about him. But one person got very curious, and, and, uh, and then, you know, he, at the end of the day, he, this guy would disappear from the marketplace. And somebody followed him home and, found, and realized that he was living in a pot that was hanging from a tree. So he convinced uh, the person they referred to as Mr. Pot to let him into the pot. Well, you can imagine what happens. It becomes a kind of wonderland only, you know, in a very utopian sense. And there's a, there's a whole tradition of paintings of what took place in the pot, but he sees this magnificent landscape and he, 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 uh, there's all these wonderful people there. And then of course, when he, uh, when this visitor has to return from the pot, he, he doesn't really have the wisdom of the, uh, of the person who, you know, the main person known as Mr. Pot. And he, um, and he loses sight of the of that visionary experience, and he and he undergoes different trials and tribulations as he tries to bring the truth of what he saw to uh, other people in his in his group and his family. So, okay, so uh, to go back to the uh, to the text, um, and let me do one last screen share here. Wait a second. My mouse isn't behaving. <laughs> um, okay. So let's go back to the the text. So this is how uh Hunger ends the first um the first verse. Um kind of with these two legendary images, the woodcutter is clearly evoking uh frustration and futility. Of of mis you know, you know misguided um, supposed wisdom and Mister Pot himself is cool but the guy visiting him in the in the tree um, also you know can't really understand it so while while uh, Yun Man is trying to return to the source of life even the smartest of people can't necessarily understand and appropriate his teaching okay so where do we go from here. Now, the second verse, I think, is where, uh, and I'll wrap up with this verse. The second verse is where um, 
the poet here is going back to the imagery of the fishing and the boating that that came up in the first verse and you know which is why i started with the with the music and so forth okay on uh, on the golden waves of water at night shadows are cast by the moon well this is similar to the first verse's last line see for yourself how bright moonlight shines on white reed flowers but here there's a little bit more emphasis on the shadowy quality so the unclear obscure um nature of the of the moonlight Autumn breeze touches snow-like reed flowers. Again, we get the white reed flowers that was in the first poem. Here, they're touched by the autumn breeze. Breeze can always mean the style of teaching. You know, breeze is the physical component, but it's always kind of the spiritual energy. It can always imply, especially in in a Zen writing, uh, the spiritual energy that comes from the teacher. And the snow-like reed flowers could be the disciples that are touched by the breeze, but are they really getting the point? Have they been illuminated? You know, or do they just have the whiteness that is is their superficial nature and they haven't really seen the jewel or the radiant light? So now we turn to the standpoint of the person riding out on a boat fishing. And he seems to be saying, Yun Men, who in the first poem was casting the fishing pole from the ancient shore. Ancient here meaning like, hey, the shore sees all the comings and goings and ups and downs of human existence and isn't affected by them. Unfortunately, in in today's world, it it is. But that's another story. So so now he takes us into the water, into the boat into the young man as as somebody out to sea fish on the bottom on the on the cold waters below aren't taking the bait so what happens when he feels like hey i had to give them the answer and they still didn't get the point and then you know i translated this as my inspiration it could be um maybe maybe it should be young man's inspiration because I think he's now that I look at it again, I think he's doing it from Yun Min's standpoint. The inspiration to be out there in the waters is receding. So I hum a folk song while turning the boat around. Now here it here they specifically say hum a folk song, meaning, well, uh, I think if we connect this back with the with the music and the poetry that we've seen, meaning to hum the folk song while turning the boat around. Where where is he turning the boat around? Is he going back to shore, giving up, or he thinks it's going to be better back at shore? Has he given up, or is he just going in a different direction? Does he take a different style here? But to hum the folk song means, I think, one way of interpreting it is that he's in touch with that you know mythical element that he's referred to, and he's trying to get to the source of the wisdom. Uh, that you know maybe is, is embedded in Shan teachings or Zen teachings, and is, is and they're the most direct and, and efficient way of getting the point. But there's other ways of getting, uh, you know, kind of evoking the point by uh, bringing in um, Chinese culture and worldviews. Okay, so I will um, end there and uh, turn to any uh, questions or, or discussion. Douglas's hand up. Thank you. Um, 
Stephen, thank you very much for your discussion. And thank you very much for showing us your translations of the, as well. I, I appreciate those. Um, I'm still uh, not clear on uh, understanding the image of the torch in the Buddha Hall and especially placing it on the art, uh, on the entryway. Uh, and I think, I, I think it's interesting that the idea that there is the jewel within the, uh, the rough body, um, there, there's a clear parallel between of, uh, the lamp that's in the Buddha hall. And, yeah, rough body, maybe better. Rough body, yeah. yeah. And the, the insistence that you have to pick up the lamp in the Buddha hall, in yeah. a way, you have to grasp the, I, I think it's saying, you have to grasp the, the illumination, grasp the Buddha nature that's in either this human body or within the realm of form generally. What's strange to me is that in the Cleary translations of the Blue Cliff Record and the Book of Serenity, and I haven't looked at the others, but Yamada Cohen's translation of um, the Book of uh, the Blue Cliff Record, they talk about taking a lamp into the Buddha Hall. Yeah, yeah. And while and you translate, this is uh, placing the lamp on the, uh, what is it? It's uh, placing it on the gate. Cleary and well, Lana uh, talk about putting the gate on the lamp and sort of reversing. Okay. And, and uh, I'm wondering yeah, where yeah. you, you know, that I, Chinese is a very flexible language. In ambiguous. I'm wondering yeah. why do you think that they would make that translating translation choice or what's going on? Well, I think in, I think in the Cleary, uh, I, yeah, I should have that in front of me. I don't know if you have that exact wording in front because. Yeah. I, um, in the book, well, let's see, we're focusing mostly on the blue book. So in the, he says, uh, pick up a lamp and go into the Buddha hall, take the triple gate and bring it on the lamp. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, um, yeah, I mean, that's very, that, may, I, that makes it very perplexing. I think that, you know, put the, put the gate on the lamp. I mean, it could be. Uh, you know, I, I think grammatically, you know, the Chinese is, can be so vague that you can justify yeah. a lot of these. And so there's nothing wrong with that translation at all. But the in terms of trying to follow the the uh, the grammar of the, of the sentence, which is which is in, inherently um, always a little mysterious. But well, I think that I think your idea of picking up the lamp in the Buddha hall. Yeah. Makes a lot more sense. OK. Within the yeah. context of. Of the uh, of the jewel in the body. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sort of clueless on the whole imagery of the uh, the second part with the, the gate. The second yes. part with the gate. I, I, I agree gate. with you. Yes, I mean I, I I've struggled with this, and I did have a workshop with uh, a couple of um, colleagues who are more expert on the Chinese literature of that period, uh, and, and the Zen Chi- the Zen literature in Chinese of that period. Um, and we we did the, we did spend about an hour kicking around this this sentence, and um, and so um, you know nobody was really clear about that that part. I mean, I think uh, you know I'd, I'd have to keep digging into it further. I you know it's one of those things because you know Cleary's Cleary's always very good, but um, but with, 
whenever you like really focus on any particular sentence, and that's true in Shobogenzo as well, any particular translation, you know, can give rise to other other thoughts because mm-hmm. it's the the original writing is so multifaceted. Um, but I mean, the, what I, the interpretation I gave at the beginning, I I think is is what I uh, feel about for uh, feel um, for now, which is that. By putting the by putting the lantern on the gate, right? You're you're presenting the illumination for others on the pathway mm. who are going to enter the gate. Now they can, you know, they can see it. So if they're walking in the forest at night and trying to find their their way to the monastery gate, you know, that lantern is is there this is a special monastery we this is the this is a monastery where we embody that jewel mm-hmm. and we can kind of you know beam it out for everyone to see that's that's how i've been interpreting it that's helpful um, thanks yeah so it's not just your lamp it's the lamp of you know the it's the dharma that is is illuminating for everyone uh, i think that's that's what i i took from kind of you know struggling with it yeah thanks There's another hand up. Please go ahead. Um, hi, you just got to where I was going to uh, jump in, Steve. Um, hi, okay. everyone. Pamela Winfield, uh, Elon University. I was um, thinking about that distinction between, you know, ontological statements. I, basically, I'm reading Buddha Hall and Dharma Gate as like um, ontology versus epistemology or like doctrinal teachings versus meeting people where they are. Um, you know, basically, if we say samsara is nirvana, nirvana is samsara, like that's all very kind of abstract and good. And that kind of resides in a Buddha hall, right? In the center of the monastic discipline, yeah. right? Yeah. But you have to meet people where they're at, right? You have to yeah. go out to the to the Dharma gate. And for those kind of on the path, as you've said, um, you have to kind of, yes, um, they're nirvana is samsara but for those of us in samsara we don't get it yet and so we have to like be at the dharma gate and then we move in right but we we need that yeah. lantern, that signal yeah. um to show us not just tell us or you, you see yeah yeah um uh good yeah yeah i think i i think that's a good point um and one you know going back to the rough body you know the the form of mountain well we know that the the temples were mountains. The masters themselves also, you know, many of them had had the character for mountain as part of their name. And and they often refer to themselves as this I'm a I'm a mountain monk. Right. And their staff was a mountain staff because you got it by walking in the woods in the forest, like off the monastery grounds when you were kind of finding your way um uh, um into in the wilderness, so to speak. And so um so yeah, you know, one way th- of um of looking at that you know it's it's hidden in the form of a mountain could be it's hidden in the form of the everyday person it's hidden in all of us but it could be that mountain could refer to the temple or to the teacher of the temple that's where it's hidden go into the buddha hall hear the teachings and then when you've gotten it when you've gotten those teachings proclaim them for for the others then you know the the, the whole point of of yun men and this kind of Frustration, he may feel the fish aren't biting and, and he has to give the answer for the assembly because they're, you know, p- people are quiet. 
um, is that, you, you know, you, you want the followers to uh, not only live up to your, um, your expectations, but that to, you know, go beyond to surpass, to, to have their own originality and creativity that they bring forth. And Yun Man in particular is known for that apropos style of teaching, make it appropriate to the circumstance. That's what he says over and over again. You know, if you, you know, if they're, uh, if it's, you know, if, if somebody's kind of floating in the wind, you got to float in the wind with them. If they're, you know, rushing along on the waters, you gotta, you gotta follow that path. You gotta, you gotta, uh, uh, bring it, bring it to their level. Yeah. The other thing that I was just going to say is, um, sometimes, um, thunder and rain and, uh, tigers roaring, um, is a very Taoist is a stock symbol for Taoist yin. Right. And that could indicate a kind of a Taoist influence in early Tang, early Chang. Yeah. Um, and so it could be a good thing, not necessarily ominous. Well, yes. Uh, that's a very good point. And, you know, I, I, uh, the, the, the thunder and the clouds, yes, can be very good. And heavy rain can be very good. <laughs> it's the, the Dharma rain, um, you know, uh, which is, um, you know, another image that's, that's frequently used in, in those days. Um, however, I, I guess I was contrasting a little bit with the other saying that was a little more gentle. The cards are, cut, you know, thunder thunder roaring is a little bit different than the clouds floating by, you know? Um, so, um, but, but either way, um, can be appropriate to those circumstances. Um, one thing is, you know, why are there these changes? Some of them major, some of them more minor, you know, maybe, uh, somebody, you know, that a lot of it was oral tradition. So somebody, uh, wrote when they, by the time they wrote it down, they, you know, they changed the character or they deliberately changed it. I mean, we, we find that a lot with Dogen, right? That he deliberately changed what his teacher said in some cases, or he, or he had a good, he had a misunderstanding, but it was a good misunderstanding. So, so, you know, I think what, one of the things that's fascinating about um, these kinds of traditions, especially in, in, you know, in, in, in Zen um, koans is that, um, you know, there's so many different versions, you know? So like in a version of a case, I think like the three pounds of flax, when Dogen tells that story, it says it ends. I, I don't quote me here because there's, I'm, I'm trying to recount off the top of my mind, but I think when Dogen tells the story, it ends with the realization. The monk was real. The monk had a realization. A lot of them do end like that. There's a simple saying from the teacher and the monk suddenly had a realization, but then some of them don't include that sentence. Now, are you supposed to me interpret it to mean, well, of course that's what happened or, did they leave it out intentionally because they don't want to actually say that they want to say that this monk had a lot more, more to learn, you know? And then, and then when you get the commentators jump on it, especially not so much in this case, because there's one guy teaching and you don't have that interaction, but in the encounter dialogues where you typically have, you know, two or more parties interacting and that give and take and back and forth of the exchange, um, you know, sometimes the commentators leap on and go, oh, this person obviously misunderstood. And then, you know, when you first read it, you think like, oh, that person got the point. And then you go, they tell you time after time, no, they misunderstood it, you know, or vice versa. You think like, um, oh, they didn't get the point. And they say, oh, that's where the teacher, the teacher was actually outsmarted by the, by the disciple. So that, that diversity of viewpoints, I, I think is, you know, is always something fascinating to me. And Dogen, of course, tries to to bring that out also the the ambiguity the multifaceted
There's a there's a question here in the in the hall. Would you like to Would you like to come and sit in front of the screen so we can hear your question? Thank you. Moved uh, moved a little bit. There we are. Yes. So I was intrigued by the figure of Mr. Pot. Um, so are you saying that those stories were outside the John? tradition, but that they were familiar to the audience that um, she was addressing? Yeah, exactly. That's my understanding, that there were a lot of these traditional folklore. Um, uh, I, we could call them folklore, we could call them mythology, a lot of things that were in the culture. So, I, I, I mean, to give a superficial idea, uh, you know, George Washington chopped down the cherry tree or something like that, something that you know, everybody in the culture is going to know pretty well. And so you, you don't have to retell the whole story. You just say a few words and they get the point. And, you know, that point is that, oh, you know, honesty or there's a certain kind of moral message behind that point. And, um, and, and, and I think that's one of the things that design, that, that, is, that the Zen teachers were very good at. Remember, you know, if you look at it, uh, kind of the history kind of analytically, they were a minority. Um, the Confucians were always kind of dominate, you know, right? It was, going, it was going to dominate. The Taoists were always uh, very strong, and there were other Buddhist sects, Tendai, Huayan. You know, there were. I mean, uh, and Pure Land. I mean, Zen was, you know, population-wise, demographically. You know, if you did a quantitative study of it, you know, Zen would only represent. I don't know. You know, ten, fifteen, twenty percent tops. Maybe at the peak, you know, thirty percent. It was always going to be a minority view. So that what they were trying to do was to appeal to the people in the middle, like the Confucians that weren't wedded to Confucianism as as a kind of uh, as as a principle in itself, but were well educated, knew knew a lot of these stories. Part of the reason I brought up the music is because you know my understanding is that the well educated people that were the intellectuals and also most of the zen masters a lot of the zen masters came out of that tradition some of them did some of them were country bumpkins so to speak and they, they were you know, more like abe lincoln <laughs> you know but um but the uh but the well-educated ones all grew up knowing music they were all um you know for, you know they took their violin lessons or their koto you know lessons uh, and flute lessons from very early on they performed in small ensembles and and so I think a lot of what they you know and and they had that sense of um, of rhyme uh, because you know the songs that they would sing were all rhyme so they try they you know we, we it's almost impossible to duplicate that in the in the translations but you know most of these poems are rhyming and and even the prose has a kind of uh, rhythmic quality to it you know there's a kind of rhetorical quality to it so they're trying to draw on 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 many of these uh uh fascinating stories and you know a lot of the folk stories like you know aesop's fables and you know so many other examples in other cultures you know have a moral teaching right it's, there's a, there's some moral lesson it may be very simplistic. It may be more complicated, and, and I think that's what the Zen masters do. Of course, their moral lesson is overwhelmingly get the point of the Dharma, and not just for yourself, but again to to uh, transmit it to to others and to and to develop the next generation. So, when the um, Shangshu's stories got repeated in Japan, like did they know about the Mister Pot stories? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, uh, very, very good question, because a lot does get transmitted to Japan, right? Um, 
but a lot a lot's probably lost to the Japanese as well. So they had their own mythology in Japan, right? I mean, the, the Shinto mythology, and they had, they had their local gods, and you know, every waterfall, every mountain had its, usually had a mythology. And there were shrine, there were Shinto shrines in the same countryside areas that the that the Buddhist temples were being built, and they had their you know local local deities. Some of them were quite similar to the Chinese, or they had been transferred from China. But probably, I'm guessing. I think you're, you know, that's a very interesting question. I'm guessing that some of those kind of legends um, might not have been known to the Chinese audience at the time. So the, um, but you know, they all had um, crib sheets, you know, for these things. They all had uh, manuals, you know, how to read the stuff, how to write their own poems. Um, you know, there were there were vast uh, kinds of um, uh, reference materials, um, dictionaries, lexicons, concordances, uh, notes, annotations of various sorts that would that would that would that the people could re- that they could refer to. But I, I yeah, I, I'm 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 gonna make a note to track that down. Like something like the Mister Pop, would that be? Would that have? that have had a resonance with the Japanese audience. Good point. Uh, Yeah, uh, I think we're getting close to when we have to wrap this up, but I just wanted to go back to the start of the story, uh, back to the source. So uh, just to to read from Cleary's Serenity version of this opening, within heaven and earth and space and time, there's a jewel hidden in the mountain of form, he calls it. In, yeah. in the in the in the form body, uh, the rugged mountain, whatever. But uh, the point is sort of like the jewel and the robe in the Lotus Sutra. Yeah. There is a, there. So, kind of the main point, the starting point is, yes, there's a, there's a light, there's a jewel that is in everything, in all objects, and in each of us. But then the rest of all of the permutations that you've been talking about. Uh, the fishing, the fishing boat, and so forth, has to do with well, how does that get shared? The, 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 the mountain gate, and so forth. So, anyway, just to, to, I just wanted to go back to that basic jewel in everything. Yeah, yeah. Now, actually, that's a uh, thank you for that point. And um, I'm thinking historically here. Um, this, so this guy Sung Jiao, you know, that they attribute this to, and and. Bob Sharp wrote about that. And it's probably apocryphal. Like, it, you know, his name was put on something somebody else wrote. But Lotus would have, that was probably like, I think, fourth century, maybe. Um, Lotus would have been earlier, right? I mean, they probably got that from Lotus or which? Yes. which yeah. Okay, good. And Sung Jiao, just footnote, Sung Jiao is important in the background of Soto. He was a great influence on Shito, Shekito, who, did the Sandokai for, for oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Okay, great. But yeah, the permutations of how this gets unfolded is, you know, kind of all the all the interweaving of these uh commentaries and verses. Yeah. Dr. Hein, uh I had a quick question. Yeah. About the uh the Sushir poem that you used uh for the talk today. Uh, the one about the boats, there was a line that talks about the, um, uh, I don't remember exactly uh, what the words were, but I think the sleeping uh, fowl. Uh, and, I, and I noticed that in the characters that use the 
uh, the Chinese character for dream. Uh, so I was wondering uh, mm. if if yeah. you did that translation or or uh, you get that translation from somewhere, and if so, you know why why did you why was the word sleep used for uh, okay. that character? Uh, yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Uh, let me um, let me look back at the. Uh, well, I there are a couple of other translations I which of course I looked at and uh, the um yeah um okay so you're reading uh let me read that first uh, as a light breeze rustles the reeds and cattails I open the hatch to watch the rain only to see the lake is flooded by moonlight so there is no rain um which which is what he thought had woken him up uh, boatmen and waterfowl alike have tumbled into sleep. A large fish startled scurries away like a flock, fox fleeing. And yeah, if you look at the character, so the boatman and the waterfowl, that's pretty straightforward. And then it says both the same are dreaming. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, it, it, um, you know, it's one of those areas. I mean, dream is obviously a more evocative word and a, and a, you know, you could, you know, I, at one point, I, I think I did play with the idea of are lost in their dreams, maybe, you know, um, and, and that, I don't know why I changed it, actually. But um, I think, uh, you know, on further consideration, I thought, well, it's it's not quite that exotic. It's It's just like they're, they are asleep. And, and everything else is, uh, and he's the only one that seems to be awake. And then, and then his being awake kind of startles this um, this fish that that kind of floats by. But um, let me let me reconsider that. That's a good point. I mean, lost in lost in their dreams would be would be a little more exciting uh, a phrase to use. I think <laughs> that sounds right. But just to note that for Dogen, dreams is a positive. Yeah. Dream. And yes. And, and dream within a dream and dream. Yeah. yeah dream would be positive. So I, uh, that's, um, um, uh, but it's, a yes. So I think the question would be what's more important here, the dream state or the, or the, um, or that they're, that's just the fact that they're kind of all, you know, whether it's humans or, or the, or the fish that they're, they're, they're asleep, I guess that's, you know, but these things can, yeah, endlessly be debated. Yeah, maybe maybe the Dogen interpretation is not relevant here, but yeah. Well, I think um, I mean I think the dream. You know, I always think like you know Martin Luther King said, "I have a dream," right? And then like, uh, but if you say to somebody, "Hey, you're a dreamer," I mean, those mean so dream is quite yeah, it does have quite a range of um, associations. So you're you're um, you got quite a few activities these days. It seems like you're more active. Your group is more active than ever. Well, I've got a lot of stuff going on. It's it, we're the room that you saw is where we're sitting in person Sunday yeah. morning and Monday evening. Otherwise, we're just renting that, and otherwise, we're all still on Zoom for and and, and hybrid for Sunday and Monday. But yeah, we're looking for a, a long term space, but that's a, a process. So. Yeah, but I mean the list of uh, of speakers and things is quite intense when you look at the. Um... Yeah, most of them are people from our sangha, but you know we have guest speakers too. Right. So right. yeah. Anyway, right. thank you for thank you for being a regular <laughs> uh, addition. So I really appreciate you know. Yeah. 
your, I'm sorry, your sorry to interrupt. Um, uh, I'm no. going to leave now, but thank you so much. Uh, okay. Me. Well, th- thanks, Jonathan. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, John. So anyway, Stephen, thank you. Um, uh, you know, I, the, I, the point I was making at the end was that on some level, the basic uh, message of the koan is, yes, there's a, a, a light in everything, you know. Uh, right. But then where, how does that unfold is like, yeah. you know, the meandering flowing of the, of the water and swimming of the fish. And so that's, right. and that's, right. and that's actually, right. I think that's true for a lot of the koans that there's, you know, there's this basic point, but then there's how does it, you know, I mean, all the teacher-student interaction is about how does that, you know, how is that shared? How is that expressed? Yes. Well, uh, that's 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 correct. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I guess I'm thinking again of, you know, the three pounds and, you know, the radishes and the shirt. And you and men, of course, the dry it shit stick or however you right, right. A lot of them are like, the you know, so deliberately ordinary or vulgar even, you know, now here, like a jewel is so is a little is is the opposite right so it's so wonderful but yet um um now uh, do you think there is a jewel in everybody <laughs> uh, yeah i believe that you haven't come to doubt it in recent years <laughs> I, I i think it's very well hidden in some beings, <laughs> and it's very well yeah. hidden in, in our it, you know it's very our... well hidden it's well known <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so you know the the uh pound of uh three pounds of flax or whatever um, yeah and so forth all of those are examples of yeah the jewels everywhere you know yeah. so the uh the uh, the uh ultimate right in the in the particulars anyway that's what well, one thing i noticed in 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 reciting the um jewel mirror um that because the the person in in the um you know asked the question about the that folklore with the you know um and and of course that's got some examples right in there, right? Absolutely. I, yeah. 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 <laughs> um of of um what what was the main one? I was I can't remember. There was something that just there really a bunch of them. There's, there's well, a bunch, yeah. I mean there's a thing like the the Buddha who sat for ten eight kalpas without becoming a yeah. I mean that's from Buddhist lore, but then there's yeah. Uh, but there's something there was something on the I think the third screen. That was just left out as like obviously this. Um, yeah, I, I, but, I can look yeah. it up, but yeah. But there's a lot. Yes, there's the yeah. wooden man and the stone woman. The, the wooden man. That's another. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, the whole. In some ways, you know, I, I, I the whole idea of koans as being inscrutable, paradoxical puzzles to solve is, you know, I just I I uh, I react against that uh, yeah 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 uh, but yeah i mean there's a way in which the teachers are by with these uh, strange phenomenal particular statements trying to uh, you know maybe uh, misdirect the or, or get the these the uh, students or whoever to see that even there yes there's the truth so i mean that's just my right. little interpretive yeah 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 side. Anyway, thank you, Stephen. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to our work on John Wesley Harding. I haven't had a chance to really dig into it yet. But I, but I, a friend to the poor. Yes. <laughs> and there's a moral of the story. <laughs> yes. Um, 
Exactly. Okay, good. Well, th thank you. Take care. Be Have well. a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.